Hi there. Welcome to another episode of 24-Hour Video. I'm your host, Jason Green. is actor, musician, Noah Reed. You will probably know Noah best from his role on the entertainment juggernaut known as Schitt's Creek. If you haven't watched it, well, I mean, come on, you've watched it. We've all watched it. Noah plays your girlfriend's favorite character, the lovable Patrick. Noah's acting amongst legitimate comedic giants here, and he does not for one moment seem out of his depth. In fact, in my opinion, he turns into the glue of the show. A massive film snob friend of mine described his grounded, sincere performance as the only thing stopping the show from flying away in the wind like a zany plastic bag, and I think he's right. For those of you who don't know, my wife, Emma, is Canadian, Torontonian, born and bred, and Toronto has kind of become a second home for me. I was there all the time pre-pandemic. And I met Noah, if you can follow this because he has been best friends since childhood with my wife's younger brother, Jacob. Now, we had met a few times, but the one time I I really first remember meeting Noah was in the most Canadian way possible, drunk on Moosehead at a Leafs game at the Scotiabank Arena. This was years before Schitt's Creek. I knew he was an actor, accomplished stage and screen, and I loved to chat with him about all the stuff he was working on, various sitcoms, films... When he got on Schitt's Creek, it was only airing in Canada, and I saw the cast, and I was really impressed, but I didn't watch. Then it got on Netflix, and I still didn't watch it. Now we had friends coming over to our place in Brooklyn, and seeing a photo with us with Noah, they'd freak out. Now I was pissed. I was refusing to watch the show. Why? Well, because I was deeply jealous, furiously, maniacally jealous. He was working with all of my comedic heroes. What an asshole. After about five years since the show's debut, I was finally able to tamp down my burning envy enough to watch it. And it was funny. God damn it. He could have at least had the decency for the show to be bad. And Noah? He was great. Oozing charm and likability and handsome? The fucking prick. I've forgiven him for these sins, but when I hear him talk about staying with Steve Martin at Martin Short's lake house, he calls him Marty. Forgive me if I have to go outside for a bit to calm down. Noah is also an accomplished musician, because of course he is. His cover of Simply the Best from Schitt's Creek went to number one on iTunes, and inspired thousands of people to record covers of his cover. He released his album Gemini in May of 2020 to Billboard chart success and sold out shows across US and Canada. If he starts a movie podcast, I'll kill him. More importantly than all these successes and talents is that Noah is an incredibly lovely, funny, intelligent person who I always look forward to talk to. He's just a really delightful guy, and I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you do too. 
And for all my musician friends that reached out about the sound being bad on the last episode with Sam Lipsight, I know. I tried to fix it this time. Stop being nerds and shut up and leave me alone. All right. Please enjoy this episode with Noah Reed. I love you. This is 24-Hour Video. 24-Hour Video. What is the last movie that you've watched? I think the last movie I watched was uh, There Will Be Blood. I watched the other night for the, the probably the third time. Um, I'm, uh, I'm in New Mexico right now. Uh, I'm, I'm in quarantine for, uh, for a project that's about to start shooting. And, uh, and I, yeah, I just, I don't know, something about like, I was up late. I was like, what am I going to, what the hell am I going to do here? I was scrolling through Netflix and I saw an old friend in Daniel Day-Lewis and I just, I was like, okay, I've got three hours to kill here. So let's do it. That intro scene where there's absolutely no dialogue for what is it 20 minutes something like that yeah where he's like alone and and digging the hole and getting in there and falling down and pulling himself out and yeah such a cool sequence i he's that the movie does such an amazing like just tension pull the whole time you know it's really like there's something so unsettling about it, but in a, like a really satisfying way, you know, you kind of, and he's such a dick. He's such an absolute dick and you root for him. It's, it's so great. Yeah. I think it, he treats it like a horror film in many ways, the way the score works, the pacing of the film. Um, have you ever seen a movie called Eureka by Nicholas Rogue starring Gene Hackman? No, I've never seen Eureka, and, and I feel like this is going to happen a lot over the course of our conversation, where you're like, where you're like, have you ever seen? And I'm like, no, I have not. <laughs> it's not a quiz. It's not a quiz. I am just saying this because I think you will find it super interesting because the op- it's about Gene Hackman plays the patriarch of his family who's made his money digging for gold. And the opening sequence is like a 20-minute silent sequence of him in the snow finding his first uh, pile of gold. And it's I'm sure Paul Thomas Anderson watched that. Um, but if nothing yeah. else, you should check out. the. It's one of the best opening sequences in the history of cinema, I think. But it... it it takes a, a dive <laughs> after that, but it, it, it's pretty amazing. I think they're, I think they're probably inspired. He was inspired by it, perhaps. It's funny how much of that there is. Eh? Like there's the, in, in, in cinema at large, there's like a lot of, and I guess this is, you know, all over the place in music, this is true too, but like uh, the referential, like the, the really in, intense, like almost shot for shot, uh, I don't want to say copycat thing of like taking a sequence and using it in for your own purposes. But like, I love all of these like weird Instagram accounts that are like, this sequence came from this and that sequence came from that. I've started following all these terrible, like boredom will do horrible things to you, Jay. And and I've started following all these weird cinema accounts and I feel like a cinephile when I follow them, but I'm not because I don't watch enough movies (laughs) to actually know. I'm like, Oh, cool. 
The Shape of Water had this sequence that was in this other movie. I can't even remember what the other movie is. Um, but uh, but yeah, it does feel like there's a lot of that like copycat stuff. Sure. Well, cinema's kind of, to a certain degree, is a semi-limited language. And I think if you are obsessed with film and you see a sequence in some old noir film and you're like, that's amazing. Um, maybe I should put that in my zombie film or whatever. And that kind of recontextualizes the whole thing. Even when you're like pitching something, it seems like, you know, I have friends who are, you know, screenwriters or cinematographers or this or that. It's all about like what is, what, what your project is can be most easily described by it's this meets that. (laughs) It's always, yeah. It's always think a little bit this, but like with a little bit of this turn, you know, kind of mixed in, and then like a, the tone of this, you know. Yeah. I found that in in I was just making a new record, and and I found that was completely true. Like, I in in the same way that I don't know that much about movies, I don't know that much about music, and these are the two areas that I actually you know should know something about because they're kind of my jobs. But um, but it, when I was making the the record, I was amazed at like how all of these incredible musicians would be talking to my producer, Matt Barber about like, like he'd be like, Oh, can we do a little bit of like Tom Petty or like, can we do like, I'm thinking like a little, you know, uh, this for the, for the rhythm section. And they would immediately click into what that meant and how to contextualize it within my song. So it was like, you know, this, this shorthand that exists within a medium is kind of, uh, kind of amazing. It makes me think that I should be, you know, paying more attention. <laughs> Well, you've gotten this far, so you know you're do- you're doing all right. <laughs> yeah, don't don't change it now, right? Exactly. <laughs> you don't jinx yourself. So, what would uh, be obviously, you know, the pandemic's going on. I think it's affected the way we've all been absorbing media. How? What's your what has your pandemic viewing habits been like? Well, I'm, I mean, like a year in now, I've been really. Uh, I guess I, I, early on, I tried to, I was like, okay, I need a series. I need a long series that I can, that I can really dig into and, and go the distance with. My wife and I watch TV together sometimes, but she falls asleep about seven hours earlier than I do on, on average. <laughs> and so, so that leaves me with a lot of time to, you know, to be doing something. Um, and uh, so I early on, I went in deep on um, on Breaking Bad, which I had never seen. And I was oh. like, uh, I'm going to I'm going to save, you know, I, I feel like I do this when shows come out. I'm, I'm generally behind and then I will hide behind this mask of like, you know, um, that it's an intentional choice. And that I'm waiting. I think when people were like, oh, you seen Breaking Bad? I was like, no, I'm going to wait like 10 years until Breaking Bad is a period piece. And then I'm going <laughs> to watch it then. <laughs> and it actually happened. And, uh, and so I watched that sort of, you know, front to back, um, which was enjoyable and intense and very unsettling. And, you know, weird that I'm in Albuquerque now, um, yeah. sort of looking around for Bob Odenkirk everywhere I go. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I, movies, I don't know. I, I've, I've, started to, I've started to watch more movies now, I think. Um, I wasn't watching a ton of movies through the pandemic. It was more, more TV because it felt like some kind of like serial quality was, was necessary for the passage of time. Sure. Um, yeah. As opposed to the one-offs. But now that I've kind of, you know, 
started uh, now. I mean, I'm my my wife's in Toronto, and I'm here alone. Um, I was gifted a, a Criterion um, membership for Christmas, and that's been really cool. I mean, I haven't really dug into it as much as I should have, but I, you know, I watched um, Days of Heaven for the first time, and uh, all of, I've got like a list of like. 50 movies that I really ought to have seen by now, you know, uh, uh, Coup and the bicycle thief and all these like amazing oh, yeah. sort of foundational, um, films that really anybody who's serious about, uh, anything ought to have seen. Um, do you ever get that feeling sometimes with these classic films like, uh, bicycle thief, um, that almost, because they're so in the canon and so well known that you feel like you've already seen them already, even though you haven't watched them. So it, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know if I, if I feel like I've seen them so much as like, I don't want to. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I don't want to like, I don't want to ruin it or I don't want to, I, I don't know what it is. Like I, I, I think, you know, like a lot of, uh, I don't know if I'm a millennial. I think I probably am, but like a lot of, people who you know were born in like the late 80s and into the into the 90s like that kind of the classic thing hasn't hasn't hit me in the same like there's something kind of like quote unquote boring about the classics that as an artist I feel I'm I'm repulsed by even saying that but it's like there is that sort of like uh, reticence to to go in and uh, you know say that something that my parents generation said was amazing like do i have to verify that or can there be something that's amazing in my own time can i be you know more interested in things that are happening around me now um but of course like you know you there's so much to learn from from all of this stuff but yeah i, I don't know like i i have this <laughs> this list and in a weird way the black and white stuff is harder for me to engage with like i watched that uh, fincher film Mank, uh, yeah. this on uh, Netflix about you know the guy who wrote uh, Citizen Kane. Yeah. I was like, why am I watching this? I've never seen Citizen Kane. This is yeah, insane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think a lot of people <laughs> were in that scenario. <laughs> <laughs> it's so stupid. Yeah, well, I mean, I even I've had that recently as a person who's. I mean, you know, I, I try to. My wife is actually in Canada quarantining right now. So I've been here alone. And um, so I've been, my whole thing was I'm not really watching TV during the day. I'm working. And then at night I'll watch a movie or two and I'm trying to make them good. Like I'm trying to like force myself to watch certain things that I haven't seen or whatever. Um, and I was realizing there was a lot of Bergman movies I'd never seen and I could barely mm -hmm. get up the energy. And I just was like, not looking forward to it. Why am I doing this to myself? And then I watched uh, Virgin Spring. It's an hour and a half, and it was great. It's one of those things where you, I put, I think people put a weight on stuff that it's going to be difficult and boring and tough. And it's, I mean, it's like two hours shorter than Marvel Endgame or whatever the fuck. So it's like not that right. big of a thing, you know? It's like two episodes of TV. But yeah, I, I know the yeah. feeling. I think I think everybody goes through that, especially if you grew up on TV stuff. I mean, grew up like on the, this era of sort of the golden age of TV, as they say. I think it it makes it tougher. Yeah, I mean, and then there's this other thing that happens. I think among like you know um, actors, actors are such a 
bizarre group of people and there's so much posturing and showing and showing off and like you know i i know a lot of actors who are like oh my god have you seen uh, the the Kubrick's entire over it is so incredible and you're like shut up you haven't seen it you don't care you're not that good at what you do it's not like stop stop this it doesn't make you better you know <laughs> well, let know. me ask let me ask you about that actually because you started off you're like a theater you were a theater kid you started off doing stage performances yeah right um yeah yeah uh do you consider your are, is that your first love in terms of acting is it are you more drawn to theater than you are to film and television or is it sort of a an equal equal weight i think at this i think at this point um i'm more interested in film because i feel like there's well for one it's a it's a medium that can happen right now um right. but but I, I the theater for me in terms of like performance there is something so pure about the about the 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 act of it um and the exchange between an audience and the thing that happens between performers and and audiences and i feel like you know i i really hope that when when this whole fucking gong show concludes that um that you know people are are excited to be amongst other people again and, and to see things happen live i remember going you know as a kid um to new york on trips with my family and seeing shows where like like i saw a production of long day's journey into night with um brian dennehy and vanessa redgrave and wow. yeah. philip seymour hoffman and robert sean leonard it was this crazy fucking production and these people on stage like it was it was a, like a movie that was happening in front of you uh and you know no cuts no nothing there was just like you were just there with those people and i, I there is something really exciting about that from a from a performance standpoint too um and the you know the fact that you have to do it over and over and over again for however long you have and then it's gone there's no you know you yeah. work on it for months at a time and then you know you do it for a few weeks and then it's gone and you say goodbye to it and there's no record of it there's no um you know there's no accolades really beyond like you know i guess depending on where you're performing but I remember doing a show with a, a good good friend of mine. It was this really cool Annie Baker play and uh, called The Aliens. And we were doing it at this small theater in Toronto. And it was opening night. And we were going out for dinner before the show. And uh, and he was like, man, I, he, he was quite nervous. And, you know, I was quite nervous too. And we were talking about that. And he was like, you know, I just, I'm trying to shake the idea that like this show could be big for me. And I was like, yeah, well, shake that because it won't be. It's not. <laughs> it shake it right off. Will, yeah. Yeah, just know right now that it will not do anything for your career <laughs> except for like you've had the experience, you know, and that's yeah. that's kind of the that's where the gold is there. Eureka. Um, but uh, but yeah, I don't know. I think right now for me, like the film medium and and, um, you know, getting to work on on sets that are uh big honking so I'm, I'm excited about this show that i'm doing right now basically is what i'm saying and yeah um and it's like it's definitely the biggest thing i've ever worked on in terms of the scope of it um there's eight episodes there you know we're on a basically a, an eight month shoot it's like a month per episode 
on Schitt's Creek, we would take four days per episode, I think. So, right. um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a different kind of thing. So I'm, I'm excited mostly just to like expand my, my universe a little bit and, and, and perform in a different, a different, a way that I haven't really had the opportunity to. I know you, I mean, you started so young. Um, so I can't imagine there was like a, an epiphany moment that young where you're like, this is what I want to do for a living exactly. But was there, uh, did you ever, do you remember a certain film performance or, or uh, theatrical performance? Was there, what was the, th- was there someone's performance that you were like, this is a thing I really can see dedicating a huge part of my life to? I don't know. I, I, um, I'm sure there were a few, I think that the, the, the purest sort of instinct that I had about performance was that I wanted to do it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, I don't know that it, that it came necessarily from like seeing, I think then, then like, you know, seeing, you know, movies and, and, uh, like I loved as a kid, I loved, um, people like Paul Newman and, uh, and, uh, Jimmy Stewart, like the, this sort of like cool energy, but like a little, a little off, a little strange. I loved what, like, you know, my parents would, we'd go to Blockbuster and pick out a bunch of stuff and, um, you know, come back with like seven VHSs. This <laughs> is kind of amazing to think of now when you're like scrolling through Netflix. You're like, man, we used to go eat a full bag of chips in the store walk around for about three hours and pick out all these like honking cassette tapes. Yeah. Um, but I think like, you know, definitely I, I, st- I, w- I was a performative kid. I think I was more performative then than I am now in a lot of ways. And uh, like, I wanted to be, I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be different. I wanted to be cool. I, I wanted to be like watched. I wanted people to laugh at me. Um and you know this was an easy way to achieve all of that i i i it kind of came it came pretty the performative instinct came pretty naturally to me and and then it was sort of supported i think by like you know watching movies or like seeing like grease or uh you know going to uh going to the theater but i was i played oliver when i was six in this uh in this community theater in toronto and like that was like that was so cool like i just felt like i was like oh i'm special you know and then i wanted i wanted that feeling over and over again i basically am a junkie i'm a <laughs> i was a child acting junkie i do think there is something addictive about it you know oh I, absolutely i mean I, I think almost anyone who is involved in any aspect of performing arts has some deep deep issues that they're trying to resolve <laughs> by doing it. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so you mentioned seeing some films with your parents. Were your parents big movie lovers? Did you guys, uh, did, how do they, how do they treat your, do they treat you kind of like an adult? They'd watch whatever they were interested with you or what was it like at home when you were growing up? No, I think they were, I think they just wanted us to, to, you know, uh, I think they probably, my folks are visual artists and um, they, I don't know how like engaged with, with film they really were or are, Um, you know, they watch stuff, uh, but they weren't like, they're not cinephiles. You know, I I think like, you know, we weren't the family that was going to tip all the time. Um, 
we would generally like watch movies together on like Friday nights, maybe. Um, and they'd be kind of like, you know, um, I don't know. Like they were, they were generally things that were, <laughs> my dad was really big on like the Charlton Heston Bible epics. And we were, he'd come oh, wow. with something like the, the robe. And we'd be like, Oh no. It wow. <laughs> 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 was really, he, he got the message pretty clear that we weren't that psyched on that, but there was something like epic about those stories. I remember like oh, watching yeah. Spartacus, you know, when I was a kid and being like, Oh, this is cool. Like I was, really into like Robin Hood and um you know that kind of world Errol Flynn um and uh but one I I remember he came home once he was like guys we're going to watch this this movie it's called Star Wars have you heard of it and we were like no he's like okay well it was from the 70s it's a whole star universe a lot of cool characters we're going to put it in they so put in the cassette of Star Wars and it comes up and it says, you know, the epic music, bah, 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 and it goes, Star Wars, episode four. And he goes, what the hell? <laughs> and he takes it out. He's like, yeah, but they gave me episode four. This is ridiculous. So we all went back to the video store to return it. And this like little nerd behind the counter was like, sir, it starts at episode four. <laughs> we were like, all right, I'm just checking and we've got the right one. Good. Thank you very much. <laughs> we went back and we watched it. I can't blame you. That's, you know, it's a confusing concept. That's, it's basically a math equation to figure out which one is first. Absolutely. He, he hadn't done his research. Had your dad not seen Star Wars up until that point? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> I don't, uh, <laughs> How old were you? How old were you, do you think, when that happened? I think probably like, you know, 10. Like, this would be like the mid-90s, you know? Um, yeah. So he had he had had twenty years, or maybe he'd seen it. He probably had seen it actually as a as a as a young man in theaters, but hadn't remembered that you know it started at four. Um, yeah, it was just funny. Or I, like that, I feel like that sort of encapsulates like my parents' take on on movies, which is like you know they were interested in in involving us in this in this kind of storytelling world, and obviously we were interested in it um, as all kids are really. But, uh, you know, they wanted to put interesting things in front of us and, and, you know, mixing in sort of some classic stuff, some, some sort of like, uh, some mid classic stuff and then some, probably some, some more contemporary things. Um, but I also like, you know, I was obsessed with Charlie Chaplin as a kid. Like I loved, and I, I can't tell like if that's, that must have been something they put in front of me and I responded to. But that, like I was the kid in school who like was watching like old stuff. You know, oh wow! And cool. everybody else was like, "Have you have you seen this?" And I was like, "No, but have you seen Buster Keaton?" And yeah. They were like, <laughs> "What? Get out of here, man!" Uh, so you know, like, yeah, I feel like there was some some concerted effort on my parents' part. Probably once they knew that I was interested in performance, they were like, "Okay, well, then you should you know get to know some of the some of these people," which is maybe where my like classic reticence comes from because mm-hmm. I was like, sure. you know, I was foie gras in the classics as a, yeah, as a yeah. child. And <laughs> now I'm like, no, let me watch Cobra Kai. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Were your parents strict about stuff that you would watch kind of on your own? Were, were they like, don't watch rated R movies? Were they kind of overseeing that way? Or were you left to your own devices sort of? 
Um, I think they were. They, well, my parents were strict about TV watching. I think that the movies had a different um, had a different thing, um, uh, like a sort of an exemption. But TV watching, we were only allowed to watch like one show a week, which I remember feeling very austere. And I think it was Friends for the bulk of my like you know childhood because my sister wanted to watch it and she was like, "I'm watching Friends," and I'm like, "Cool, I guess I'll watch that as well." And I had no idea what was going on. One show a week is brutal. Yeah, it's tough. That's tough. That's very tough. But but we were allowed to watch like you know mo- like the weekends were for movies. So then we could kind of you know dig in on that. I think we watched a lot of like Saturday Night at the Movies with uh, LWO. So I don't know if it, they have that in America. That was a PBS thing for for um, for Canada. But I don't. What, uh, what explain what it is. So Saturday night at the movies was hosted by this guy, Elwi Yost, who was this nice old man in a tweed jacket um, who uh, would do these intros to, you know, basically like classic movies. Um, and I guess they sort of ranged. I don't really remember. I don't have like a specific memory. Of, oh, yeah, I do. We watched uh, we watched Giant on Saturday night at the movies. Oh, wow. uh, like it was that kind of thing, you know, James Dean and like these kind of epic things. And then they would take a break to be like, we, we hope you're appreciating the movie. Please give us money. We will <laughs> die if you don't give us the money. <laughs> Back to your programming. And then you'd have like a and a um, you know, with somebody, either a film critic or somebody who was involved. And then they would, they would typically it would be a double header, but I don't think anyone in my family would stand up late enough for the, the second round except maybe my dad i'm impressed that at that i'm I'm guessing even if this was in high school sitting and watching giant is that's pretty impressive i don't think a lot of kids would be interested (laughs) and it's long it's so long it's so long i remember being very interested by james dean's hairline because they kind of like shave it out at a certain point because he gets these old and they they make him look old by like shaving him like receding his hairline i'm like man you guys took like the sexiest guy in hollywood and made him decrepit he must have been furious maybe he was into it i don't know did you have i'm sure he was probably so into it (laughs) did you (laughs) like change me make me different oh yeah totally yeah did you have a a a sort of a a reaction to james dean the first time you saw him was he an actor that spoke to you in some particular way no, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, I find him a little whiny, to be honest. I yeah, I I think I found I think my reaction was kind of like, well, what's the big deal? Like, <laughs> you know, he's obviously he's like a. Re- <laughs> I really hope that James Dean doesn't listen to this. I no, he, I would be so embarrassed. Um, yeah, I'll, make, I'll make sure to keep it from his people. <laughs> yeah, please do. Um, but no, I I kind of I don't know. Like, it, there's something about, obviously he he has a a really distinct presence. Um, but I, I wasn't like compelled to go watch his other movies. I wasn't like, I, I've never seen rebel without a cause. I've never, I, I, I wasn't like, Oh, this guy's amazing. This guy, yeah. I was more interested, I think in, in Gregory Peck. Um, sure. You know, and, uh, and I liked, I, I, I liked a lot of the guys of that era. Like I really liked, um, Cary Grant in a weird way. Like I like, I like movies like uh, the Philadelphia story. It was like quick and, and sharp and, 
you know, there was people were getting one over on on each other. That sort of stuff was was fun. There was a lot of sarcasm that I really sort of dug as a kid. Um, and I, of course, I loved you know uh, Jimmy Stewart doing things like um, uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington and that like the yeah. kind of epic like you all think I'm licked, you know that kind of that like up against the world stuff really spoke to me as a kid. I don't know why I had no problem. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to make a difference, you know? I, I think I was talking about this recently with someone about the transition from the sort of Cary Grant's and Jimmy Stewart's, um, Humphrey Bogart's Edward Robinson. These guys were movie stars because they were such a singular, they didn't look like anyone else. Their voices were so mm-hmm. specific. They seem like they were from another planet. I mean, this was, there's no one you knew in your life that looked or sounded like Peter Lorre, right? Uh, and <laughs> yeah. then, and that's something that's like instantly identifiable. John Wayne, these people are like, so they're one of a kind. These are just movie stars, but they're always sort of, I mean, Cary Grant is never, never disappears into a role. Uh, you're watching it because you love Cary Grant, whatever role he's in. But then this n- second wave yeah. came along with the like James Dean and Marlon Brando. I just rewatched Streetcar. I don't know if you've seen oh, yeah. it, but but uh, I hadn't seen yeah, it. Yeah, a long time ago, yeah. Yeah, same. I hadn't seen it in years, and I, I rewatched it. And I mean, he, you can't get a more beautiful man than him. I mean, he's just gorgeous. <laughs> But yeah. his performance, he's like always eating chips. Like you can't understand what he's saying. And I, I, <laughs> I get why I think at the time people were so obsessed, right? Because it was the first time naturalism was sort of introduced into cinema. Um, but it, as time goes on and acting has progressed, it, it doesn't hold up quite the same. It's sort of these big, broad, superstar performances. Like when you listen to yeah. a Lenny Bruce record, I respect that he broke the boundaries he broke. Are the records funny? Not a chance in hell. They're, they're terrible. Right, right. The comics that came before yeah. him that were doing set up punchlines like Henny Youngman and, and, and Don Rickles and all those guys, those are still funny records. Um, yeah. So I think it's a similar thing. Important, definitely. Lasting, harder to say. Well, that's the thing, and like I, I, I kind of wonder how that will translate in in our current sort of state of of movie making, which is, you know, I mean, for years we've been talking about that the middle of of cinema just disappearing. There's no middle class of cinema. It's like it's like the the down and dirty indie, or it's the the big studio superhero flick. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are still a, a number of production, like A24 is still like, you know, trying to make things that that you relate to real people with a decent budget. Um, you know, that that kind of thing. Like and, and, and there I feel like there is some push towards but it's mo- it's mostly happening in TV now, like where that's where people are going for yeah. that kind of middle zone content. But I wonder how like the performance style of now like I remember watching Drive and being like, yeah, this is like a really cool music video. And I yeah. don't know how this like hyper stillness is going to translate 
years later, you know, decades later, are we going to look back and be like, what the fuck were they doing? They thought that they were so cool. Um, but it's sort of, it's pervasive now. It's like this, this, this stoic, um, not doing like you're doing too much if you're doing anything kind of style of acting. And, and I don't know, I don't know how, how that's going to, if that's just of our time or, or if that's going to, if that's going to sort of evolve into something else, like, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and you, you think about even just not that long ago, there was all those found footage films, the whole right. premise being, and it, and it, and it didn't just stay in horror films. It went, there was the, um, that Jake Gyllenhaal cop film. Uh, there was a bunch of movies that use this sort of found footage setup and already yeah. it feels so archaic just because of the quality yeah. of the cameras and the idea like it just it feels like such a it feels so outdated it's, like it's not even a decade old the concept so when you are preparing for like for this new show you're working on we don't have to get into the details or anything but did you do you find yourself ever watching performances or you're i know you said you because of the place you were in you know watching there'll be blood but is there like you're you're taking on a certain role do you ever find yourself watching something to kind of get yourself in the mindset or inspire you to do the work uh i think definitely like you know on this one we we got a sort of a resource list from our, our showrunner and it's been really fun to kind of dig into some of that. And, uh, you know, I think it's rare that, that you get to, um, I don't know, that you, that you get that pure of a sort of, uh, uh, a reference list that's, that surrounds what he was thinking about while he was writing. Um, and mostly it's, um, you know, mostly it's, uh, literary stuff that's some visual art stuff. Um, some music stuff uh, and a couple of films. And, you know, uh, I, I rewatched uh, There Will Be Blood. Uh, not, yeah, I already said that. Uh, <laughs> I rewatched um, uh, No Country for Old Men because uh, Josh Brolin is the, is the lead in this. And I, and I feel like that's, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a, a bit of a tonal touchstone for this project. Oh, wow. um, and uh, so that was kind of very cool to to go back into that. like I hadn't seen that probably since I saw it in theaters and thought it was the best thing ever and such great like characters in that film. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. I think in terms of how it relates to like character or or you know picking up little things to steal or use, I think like I look for that in anything that I'm watching now. And I, I and I've sort of like I've given myself permission to to go off of that list at this point and go, okay, well watch what you're going to watch, you know, see, look at the things that you're interested in that you want to see. Um, and, you know, look for, look for your character in that, look for a little, you know, um, just a, a little hint, a little, a little flavor something, you know, and that's in music too, or like I, just turning on the radio or like just watching people. Uh, I haven't been able to do that because I'm in quarantine, but, just seeing what people are doing. It's like, uh, that's, that's kind of the best thing to do really. Cause uh, everything else has been structured and considered. And there's something really uh, pure about like watching somebody in a grocery store, think about which Apple most speaks to them, you know, uh, <laughs> so I kind of, I don't know. It's kind of everywhere. I've never been a real like research junkie um, probably because the projects I've been involved with, by and large haven't really required that 
Um, and so it's, you know, it's challenging to, I think, shift your mindset depending on what the project is. Um, but I think that's where like going back to some of these, you know, some of the, some of the big old ones, the Terrence Malick movies and, and, uh, you know, that kind of that, all those, those guys that inspired the people that inspire me, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's a, that's an interesting, uh, like having a conversation with your grandfather or something, you know, you get, you get something out of it that you wouldn't get talking to your parents. Um, yeah, so sure. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested in kind of in, in digging in a little bit there, but I'm a supremely lazy human being and it's difficult <laughs> to do anything. <laughs> you know, I, I did some theater and stuff as a young man and, and, um, have done some comedy work and acting here and there. So, and I'm always very interested in, in performance choices and, and little things people do, um, to make themselves kind of stand out or, you know, make the, make a, a role that might not be that notable, more notable. Um, and I was getting really fascinated by the old sort of big, like Magnificent Seven, um, Dirty Dozen, where it's this cast of mm -hmm. alpha male stars. They're all stars. And watching how in the group shots, how they're trying to, every single one of them is trying to steal the shot away, whether they have a line or not. Like Steve McQueen is eating an apple with a knife and chomping away. You know, people are yawning, flipping their hats around. You know? yeah, <laughs> Always yeah, to try yeah. to like, do you ever, have you, have you ever encountered that on the set? Like this sort of one upmanship trying to like get in, get in there. Oh God. Yeah. I, I did a movie about. once. No, it's fine. I, I, I did a movie once called, uh, uh, I think it's called The Dependables, which is a play on The Expendables because sure. it's all old people. Um, and this, the, it, the premise was like uh, five, five young American army guys were stuck behind enemy lines in Afghanistan and the army was too afraid to do anything. But their grandparents who were all ex special forces uh, said, well, we're not going to let this stand. We're going to go get them ourselves. And they oh. go into Afghanistan. We shot this in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. And, uh, and they, I love it. they go behind enemy lines and they, they, against all odds, they rescue their boys. And the cast was this sort of group of uh, incredible older actors um, my grandfather was played by Seymour Cassell. Amazing. Um, you know, who was like <laughs> cut his teeth in John Cassavetti's movies. Yeah. And, uh, Marco Kidder was one of them. And, wow. uh, um, Lou Gossett Jr. was one of them. And, um, Cedric Smith, who's a, a, a you know, probably doesn't get his due, but is a, a renowned Canadian actor. Um, and this guy, Bo Svensson. And Bo Svensson was, I guess, like a, I, I didn't do a lot of research into Bo. Uh, he was the one guy I didn't know, and he was the biggest dick on the set. And he, he was, like, doing all kinds of, of weird games. Like, like, right before the director called action, he'd, like, say to the guy who was playing his grandson, he'd be like, 
you gonna hold the gun like a pussy? <laughs> and then it was the director was like, action, and the guy's like, what the fuck? <laughs> it was so, it was so bizarre. He would lean in, like, you know, if you're doing like, um, you, it was like somebody else's coverage, right? I think it was Cedric's coverage. And they're sort of up against a wall with guns and they're like, are we gonna do this? It's that kind of scene. And so they're shooting across Bo onto Cedric. It's Cedric's coverage. And Bo, I guess they're shooting Bo's coverage at the same time from the other side. And so Bo would just sort of lean in so as to cancel out Cedric's coverage and lean into his shot while still maintaining his shot, basically so that the editor would have no choice but to stay on him. Like it was that kind of old timey, uh, toxic masculinity gamesmanship. It was so brazen. He would show up at lunch sometimes with pages that he had written and distribute them at lunch. Be like, boys, we're doing this scene now. We're like, oh my God, you gotta be (laughs) kidding me with this. Who does this guy think he is? It was really bizarre. Anyway, I hope he's, I hope he's changed. (laughs) He, he, uh, I doubt it. (laughs) He, uh, (laughs) he was famous for, he did a lot of TV back in the seventies and eighties. And he was in the original Inglorious Bastards, the Italian film. Oh, really? Okay. And Quentin Tarantino has used him and he's in Kill Bill. uh, He's in Inglorious Bastards and smaller roles. But he's that he's exactly that kind of actor that Quentin Tarantino likes. Like he was sort of a maligned, overlooked uh, television actor with a moderate film career. He was in a couple of all kind of actiony films. But yeah, that's the story does right. not is not a shock. <laughs> I mean, I honestly I at, by the end of the shoot, I was like, there's something in this guy that like because he, he then could turn around and be super like kind and like generous you know um and you i was like there's something about this guy that just is so tragic like this must come from a a real place of um of exactly like being overlooked and and you know having finally having maybe like you know and probably he felt like he'd compromised something to come and do this thing he was only going to do it if it was this way and and, you know, I've certainly like, I've done that with indie films of friends of mine. I'm like, well, I'll do it, but I'm going to do it this way. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. you know, it, it's a bit of a flex and it's not like, um, I think you still, bottom line, you still have to be kind to people. I think that the, the, uh, the era of like, you know, being a real piece of shit in order to get something good out of people, that's kind of, that, that's kind of dwindling in terms of acceptance. Um, you know, how people, how people respond to that. It's not, it turns out you don't have to do that. You know, um, (laughs) like I remember being in theater school and being like, man, I don't know if my life has been fucked fucked up enough for me to be an actor. And, you know, years later, I'm like, Oh no, it's fine. You could pretend. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It's all pretend. Just, just pretend. Yeah. 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 Turns out it's okay. As a as a Canadian, do you have any opinions or any kind of are there standout Canadian directors or films that you feel like uh, that had some impact on you that people should know about, or 
are you of the mind like you could give two shits? Oh no, I love the I I love Canadian film. I wish that it was um I I wish that there was more of a, a an appetite for it because I think that, you know, we bleed so much of our resources into the States and, you know, people people can't really make it in Canada until they've made it elsewhere. Uh and by elsewhere I mean exactly the States. Yeah. And then, you know, there's no real incentive to come back because um because it's 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 difficult. Um, I think that um, well, my friend Andrew Cividino directed a beautiful movie called Sleeping Giant, which was uh, at Cannes a number of years ago, and uh, it's such a an amazing. Um, I think largely improvised. I think they rehearsed it with. It was done with non-union actors, um, uh, a group of kids in uh, in Thunder Bay, Ontario, sort of you know coming of age, dealing with like lazy small town summer um type stuff but in a really really beautiful way um i guess uh you know sarah Pauly's work is pretty uh mm-hmm. is pretty remarkable away from her it's such a beautiful movie julie christie in that movie is heartbreaking yeah. and yeah pinsent man pinsent is the guy i love pinsent yeah um and uh what's another one that jumps out i mean i don't know i'm 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 not really the guy for this conversation because I, I, I know so little about my own. Industry. About what? <laughs> about my own, uh, my own, my, oh. certainly my Canadian industry. I, I, I'm not very well versed in, but um, I don't know. I like, I, I really enjoyed um, uh, one week. It's a gentle, a gentle movie. Uh, Mike McGowan, who, who directed uh, uh, a movie I did called score a hockey musical, which wasn't nearly as good as one week uh, but uh but i think he's working on a new one now that i'm excited about um with uh with sarah gadden and um yeah i mean i don't know it, don mckeller is just a cool dude um mm-hmm. amazing artist that's that's one of the don mckeller feels to me like one of the guys who stayed and you know has had an incredible career and could have likely had an incredible career anywhere um, cause he's a terrific actor and, uh, and an artist. And I remember talking to him once at a tip party and him being like, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I just liked it here. And I, that was at a time when I was like, sort of like trying to move to America, but not wanting to. And I remember that conversation really being like, okay, if Don McKellar says I don't have to go, then I don't have to go. I can stay here. Um, and, uh, and I did. And once I decided to stay in Canada, I kind of, you know, things started to happen for me in a, in a way, like I was, I wasn't reaching so much to, to try to go elsewhere. And I think Canadians really feel like they need to. Um, I keep feeling like, man, if, if even half of the Canadians working in Hollywood had, had stayed in Canada, first of all, uh, you know, they probably wouldn't be lauded as the artists that they are. Um, but also they might've made some really cool shit and advanced the game for, for Canadian films. So who knows, you know, it's a bit of a, a difficult uh, prospect. Yeah. Are you, um, are you an Adam Agoyan or a Cronenberg guy at all? Do you like their films? Um, I've liked a number of Cronenbergs. Yeah. I haven't watched all of them. Um, I think, uh, you know, Eastern promises was pretty tight. Yeah. I really enjoyed. And, uh, and Agoyan, I find um, a little, a little less accessible. I think, you know, The Sweet Hereafter is a beautiful movie. 
Um, and I haven't really like, I haven't really kept up. Um, I, I find sometimes it's like the, the tone is a little inaccessible. It's a little, a little, um, uh, what's the word? Like, um, not, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, it, it doesn't, it, there's something about his, his style, like the pace of it so doesn't grab, it doesn't grab me. Um, and he's never hired me for anything. So it's hard to <laughs> <laughs> really where it, where it all comes down. Neither is Cronenberg. So, <laughs> well, listen, it's still early, you know, you're still a young man. Um, for me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, well, keeping with the Canadian content, I would be remiss if I did not touch upon what I think to be a high watermark in comedy in general, um, like in the world essentially is SCTV, I think is maybe one of the greatest comedy shows of all time. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And you are, got to work with some of these folks and what an amazing were you going into Schitt's Creek? Did you were you familiar with Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara's like stuff beyond the Christopher Guest stuff? Did did you watch SCTV or any of that kind of thing? Or were you like what was your feeling yeah, going into it? I had I had watched some some SCTV stuff just in sort of in passing on the comedy channel, you know, um, which was sort of serving up reruns of, of, uh, of SCTV pretty regularly. I remember in high school being like, Oh, somebody needs to make a a really sick rap beat out of the SCTV theme song. That would be so cool. (laughs) That'd be great. (laughs) I I didn't have the, uh, the ability to do that at the time or now probably, but, uh, (laughs) but yeah, no, I, I loved, I loved SCTV. I thought it was like, um, like it was a little over my head, I think, at the, when I was in high yeah, school. Sure. Like I, but I loved things like um, uh, Eugene doing uh, doing Trebek and what was the Jeopardy sketch called? It was called like the Idiots or something. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Martin Short has like a has like a uh, he's always has like he's cross eyed and he has no idea where he is. And yeah, yeah. Like he keeps buzzing in and he's like, "What is five dollars, Alex?" <laughs> Alex is like, I don't know what the. It's so clear that like the celebrity Jeffrey. Oh, it's called Dimwits. Isn't it called Dimwits? Dimwits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dimwits. <laughs> and it's so so funny. And it, it was obviously it was too much to hold off for SNL. Like I, I'm curious about the 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 relationship of of SCTV to uh, to SNL and and you know I mean obviously Marty Short went on to be one of their kind of like go-to guys over decades um but uh but really nobody else and uh and so i find that really really interesting um but i i don't know i mean for me largely the my familiarity with with those guys was uh was were things like guffman and best in show yeah uh mighty wind like those those really? sort of those beautiful <laughs> christopher guest movies that I mean, talk about like it, the comedy that holds up, like it, oh, it really does. Sure. Yeah. I can we, watch we those watched, every day. They're, they're so great. They're so weird and so human and funny. Like we watched best in show. Uh, we were doing a shit street live show in, in, uh, in San Francisco and they were doing a, a viewing of, um, best in show with the entire cast 
there. I think the only people that weren't there were Fred Willard, rest his soul, and uh, and Parker Posey, and um, and yeah, they they it was really cool. They did the Q and A first, which was bizarre, but really kind of awesome because they were sort of talking about the the process of making it and little bits that didn't make it in, and and then we watched the movie in this in this movie theater with all of these like you know Chris Guest fanatics and like things were getting laughs because of the Q and A, which was really funny. Right. Um, Amazing. You know, little like references to the Q and A that then you'd watch it and it was hilarious. Um, but it was so cool. And I, 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 you know, I've been lucky enough. I've worked with Fred Willard on a show called Kevin from work. Yeah. And remember just being awestruck by him. Um, I worked with, funniest. Oh God, just incredible. And yeah. I worked with Andrea Martin once. She oh. played my mom on a on a pilot called Three Inches, which didn't go anywhere, but uh was fun to shoot and she was so so amazing and then like saw her, her one woman show in LA and she's so cool. She she I, I love her. She was immediately like one of the warmest people I'd ever met. And oh, I, I that so great. sort of that carried over to, to Catherine and Eugene too. I was quite nervous about, you know, obviously about meeting them um, and yeah. working with, you know, when you're working with people who, who you you know, their work and you've seen their work and you admire them and, you know, you hold them in high esteem. It's hard to just be like, Oh, Hey, what's up? Nice to meet you. Cool. See you later. <laughs> you kind of have a bit more like, but you don't want to be too reverential. You, you know, you, you, you kind of want to still, you have to acknowledge that you have something to offer. Otherwise you really shouldn't be there doing the job that you've been hired to do. But you know, you kind of also, you want to, you want to pay homage a little bit. So it was, uh, they made that really easy though. They were like such, such kind, regular, I mean, not regular, uh, but you know, just real people, um, which was nice. Sometimes you meet people and they don't, they don't have the time. They're like, Oh yeah, whatever. You're on the show. Cool. I'm doing my thing. And, uh, and they were just so not like that. They already knew my name. Uh, it's amazing what that does for you, you know, when somebody knows sure. your name. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you know, over the, over the course of several years of, of working with them, you know, I kind of, at some point I was like, okay, I, I really better watch some more of this SCTV stuff. Eugene would be making Bobby Bittman jokes. I'm like, I don't get this. I need to do more. Oh yeah. So that I can be like, ah, oh, Noah, how are you? And I was like, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm seething with jealousy right now. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 I feel like Eugene particularly is, um, Eugene is such a, like an old school gentleman. Like he, he belongs in a world with like, you know, I feel to me, and maybe this is just my, like he has this like halo around him, but he, that Bobby Bittman character, like he, he could exist in a world with like, you know, Sinatra and, and the Rat Pack. Like he's just such a, such a gent, you know, he drinks yeah. a martini and he's, he's kind and generous and he holds the door open and he's hilarious. And when you get him going, on you know an impression or or something like uh i think doing the shit's creek live tours was probably the the most time that i ever really had amongst that uh, amongst the whole group because you know we'd be traveling together and then hanging out in the green room before shows and you know having a few drinks and then going on stage and and watching him and Catherine like Catherine can wind him up in a in a <laughs> such a great way like because 
Eugene can, is, is like, you know, he speaks quite slowly. He speaks quite deliberately. He's not on all the time, but when he gets cranked up, he sort of like, it just kind of comes and it just comes steamrolling out of him. And nobody has the key to the steamroller like Catherine O'Hara. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. She'll be like, Oh, Eugene, do that thing, do that thing. And he'll be like, what? Oh, the, uh, oh, this thing. And then he'll do it. And it's like, wow. Okay, cool. Front row seat. Amazing. Did you, did they ever impart any, did you ever get a piece of advice from either of them or some like, little nugget of wisdom that stuck with you? Or is it all very kind of peer based? I think it's pretty peer based, really. I mean, I, the, the lessons that I learned from them were kind of, you know, lead by example type things. They, they weren't, uh, they, they weren't too, uh, you know, too into sitting you down and, and telling you how to do it. Um, they, they just were really, they just were themselves and they, and they cared a lot about what they were doing. And, uh, and they, you know, just kind, funny people. I think the thing I, I learned the most from Catherine is like Catherine enjoys what she does so much. Uh, and she just has such a pure comedic instinct and that you can't have that unless you are enjoying yourself. Like she, she wants to make herself laugh more than anything. You know, I think she just, she's just having a good time. And that extends to like, when you're with Catherine, you can't help but be having a good time because she's having a good time. And it's like, you know, there were, there really, all the stuff about like, oh, there's no ego on this set. Well, it's, it's true. It's remarkable how the two of them, you know, eliminated really too much possibility for, for, for flexing because they just, they were just so, uh, so real, so, so human, so personable, so funny, um, so engaged with what they're doing and just cracking each other up, you know, and that's how you want to work. I think. Cause the show, you know, it took some time to really take off here in the States. Yeah. Um, and you know, once I realized who was, in this thing, Chris Elliott as well as another comedic. Oh my hero. God. Wow. Yeah. No kidding. It's just, it's such a loaded cast. It's, it's pretty phenomenal. And you're, you're fantastic in it as well. I mean, it's, you don't it's have to say that very, Jay. very impressive. <laughs> I'm going to edit it out. Don't worry. Yeah. Just cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wanted to talk about, I wanted to bring in the music stuff for just a second too. Um, Sure. You are also a music, musician. You released a, an album last year, right? Was the did it come out last year? It's impossible to know now. With the, yeah, last year in uh, in May. Yeah, yeah, it was a weird time to release a record for sure. We were supposed to see you on tour at the Knitting Factory, and the show was canceled right. right at the very beginning of this whole thing. Yeah, I think that was probably the hardest day of the pandemic for me was the, the night that I was supposed to play a sold out show in New York. It was a Saturday yeah. night. I was like, Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. It was a bummer. Yeah. It's just a, it'll happen. It'll happen. Um, one day I was wondering if, and this is something I've asked a few other, uh, music adjacent folks I've had on the podcast. Um, if there's a film sort of a two pronger, <laughs> that sounds terrible. It's a, it's a, uh, uh, is there a film that you think represents the experience of being a musician particularly well? And also, is there a film that 
music wise is something that really stands out to you like soundtrack or or score or anything like that huh Ooh, yeah the experience of being a musician well i i'll start by saying this jay i i sort of i think you know i'm starting to think of myself more as a musician but for a long time i kind of i was careful about saying saying that because i i don't I haven't really felt like a, like a musician. I haven't felt like I have had a lot of the experiences that, you know, musicians have touring, gigging, uh, you know, sort of piecing it together. Like I kind of, I kind of slid in the side door from, you know, from acting gigs. And I think that like, you know, my, um, my music has come from a purely musical place. Um, but my sort of, uh, my experience of being a musician it's like largely, um, you know, due to uh, due to a successful television show. So I don't really know what the experience of being a musician is. I was, you know, as you were talking about, it was like eight shows into a tour. And I was being like, oh, cool. This is like I'm soaking this experience up a little bit. So I don't really know. But what the I guess the, the benchmark for me in terms of like a music movie um, is The Last Waltz because it's just such a. Um, oh, yeah a highlight real all-star game show of, um, you know, the, the greatest musicians of that time. Um, and I liked all of the, I liked the interviews and the, the stuff that sort of, you know, uh, watching like, I guess like watching what Rick Danko was up to after, after the last waltz and like, you know, hearing, um, hearing, you know, about at, at the, that first shot where Robbie Robertson's talking about setting the whole thing up. Um, like, that's a pretty enjoyable uh, music watch. I kind of want there to be a... I want there to be a Leonard Cohen one of those, and I don't know if there will be. Um, well, I don't, there, I don't, there kind of is. There's what, a, the, the I'm Your Man uh, one? The one where he is, uh, plays in Israel. And oh, I've never seen his, that. What's it? It's at his prime. It's a con- live live concert footage, and then there's all the a lot of backstage, uh, sort of fly on the wall type, Penny Baker style. Um, huh. He actually at one scene takes a guy's girlfriend from him that oh comes backstage to visit. I mean, it's just completely insane. Uh, <laughs> I will. I'll put at the end of the podcast, I'll put in the title of the film. It's escaping me, but I'll put it in the end notes, but uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And I think it's, it's aesthetically and vibe wise in the same wheelhouse as last waltz. I would say. Terrific. See, ask and you shall receive. This is good. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, I also, (laughs) this this has given me my, uh, the perfect opportunity to tell you my favorite fact about the last waltz. And I don't know if you know oh, yeah. this fact or not. Do you know this fact about Neil Young? Oh, that they edited out the the Coke rock that was in his nose while he's singing Helpless? Yeah, he had a massive Coke booger. And then the management <laughs> said, you can't, he won't participate in the film. You have to cut him out. So that was the most expensive effect shot that Scorsese had done to date. He had to rotoscope <laughs> out the cocaine from <laughs> Neil Young's nose. <laughs> <laughs> oh man 
I'm I'm curious, like who who was in that like that backstage vibe must have been just crazy, because you know it was like Neil and Van just like burning lines, you know. Oh well, listen, Van Morrison's got the voice of an angel, but he's got the body of a turkey, and the fact that he walked out in that outfit—that's the confidence that only cocaine can give you. I'm telling you right now, that's the high kicks and the clogs. I mean. Truly, that is per- <laughs> that is confidence personified. Even in those clogs, he was like five foot two. So, uh, <laughs> uh, oh lord! All right, well, let me let's close on this. So the the question I ask everyone is: Is there a film that is generally loved by everyone that you really just cannot stand? Um. Well, sticking on a Scorsese thing, I think that the thing that jumps out to me the most and that the the movie that I've had probably the most arguments about um, is uh, Wolf of Wall Street. I, I don't I don't uh. I don't I don't get it. I don't like it. I think it's <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> I think it's the most undisciplined filmmaking that I can that I can pinpoint and i and like the, and it, that would be fine that would be fine but everyone's like oh my god leo deserved an oscar for that movie i'm like are you fucking serious for the wolf of wall street i mean he did a cool dance that was nice i liked when he was on quaaludes and he couldn't make it to the yeah. car that was funny yeah but Great you can scene. if yeah. you're scorsese and you're shooting you know like 95 hours of footage uh, probably in his director's cut and then had to like whittle it down to, I guess what we, it tallied up to be about seven hours of Jonah Hill with fake teeth saying dick jokes. I mean, it just, I, I don't know. I, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I felt like at the time that I, even at the time that I watched it, I watched it in theaters and you know, it sort of, it was like, I was excited to see it. I was like, Oh, this is great. Another Scorsese DiCaprio thing. Um, you know, this will be, it'll be like the new Goodfellas. And, uh, and it just, I was like, this is insane. How do you get away with this? This like blatant misogyny and, and just wild, uh, like run on improvs that should have been cut. You know, anyone would have cut them. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I'm blown away by it. I'm blown away by it. I got, I really should go back and watch it. Maybe it's not that bad. You know, I, I'm I'm not I'm not going to argue too hard with you on this one because I also I agree that I think he was a little too obsessed with just the concept of improv and comedians, and he gave them way too much room. And yeah, that movie could have been about forty five minutes shorter, probably. Could have been about forty five minutes. Would have been great. Would have been a nice short. <laughs> All right. So in lieu of that. For for someone who's like, no, Wolf of Wall Street is great, and you're like, no, it's not great. Here's what you should watch instead. What would you recommend? Um, I would recommend instead, uh, if you're into like uh, excessive shitty behavior um, and bizarre hilarity, uh, and a movie of equal length, <laughs> go watch The Master. Hey. Way, way way better way funnier yeah and my boy Phil Seymour Hoffman is is truly I think 
one of the one of the funniest actors, like such a brilliant dramatic comedic actor. And uh and I I yeah, that movie, I mean, he's just he's so great when he, he says, Answer the question, pig fuck he just loses yeah. it and says pig fuck to a man in front of a in front of a room of his admirers and followers. It's like it that movie to me I think speaks more about like, you know, the kind of like Trumpian follow followership and like this bizarre obsession with like um, celebrity and heroes and self-help and all of this horrible, all of these weird things that human beings feel they need to follow. And I feel like in some way, Wolf of Wall Street is trying to talk about that in terms of like, you know, money and, and uh, you know, follow with like this kind of that pen of dudes just chanting for him after he's spoken to Matthew McConaughey and thumped his chest. Um, but I, I feel like the, the, the master just has something more to say something way way more interesting to say about um human uh needs to belong to something and to pretend that uh things are meaningful well that's that another episode of 24-hour video in the can and i want to thank noah for doing the show it's so fun to talk to him and as he mentioned earlier, he's currently working in New Mexico on a series with 24-hour video fave hardcore kid Josh Brolin. It's called Outer Range. And Noah described it to me as a sort of family western meets a sci-fi thriller that's not really doing it justice, but it, it sounds really cool and I can't wait to watch it. His album Gemini is available everywhere that you listen to music. And of course, Schitt's Creek has become a complete cultural phenomenon. So if for some reason you haven't watched it, trust me, it's great. Just watch it. The Leonard Cohen documentary I was trying to remember earlier is called Leonard Cohen Bird on a Wire. And it's about his 1972 tour of Europe and Israel, which involves him doing acid in Jerusalem. 10 out of 10 would recommend. As always, I'll have the show notes up on jasongreen.org. That's J-A-Y-S-O-N green, like the color, dot org. And there are also links, by the way. They're going to take you someplace. The music was composed and performed by Nicholas Milheiser with vocal stab by Nancy Wong. Once again, I edited this stupid thing, and I had some extra tech help from the great Nicholas Milheiser. Please follow us on at 24hourvideo, our Instagram account. That's all letters, no numbers, 24hourvideo. Please message me with guest suggestions, like, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your loved ones, all that nonsense. Our next episode is with Jesse Pearson of Apology Magazine and Apology Podcast. It's fantastic. I can't wait for you to hear it. And I'll see you next time. This is 24 Hour Video. Video.